Morning, Providence. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that it is true that we're almost home, almost home to a land secured for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are, we are in awe that you would welcome us there. And we know that you do so because you have accepted us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see us as being clothed in his righteousness. It's a wonderful thing. And we pray, Lord, that as we open our, our Bibles, that you would use the word there, inspired by the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit's hands, the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, that you use all these means to help us to press on in this brief life of difficulties, that we would press on until we cross over into that distant shore, Lord. Pray that you would help us to persevere in the faith. That you would help us to understand your word this morning and to apply it rightly. We need your help in all these things, and we ask for it with, with great boldness and confidence because of your long, long history of kindnesses to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. As you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me once again, please. We'll read verse 7 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. And saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You may be seated. The epistle of James encourages us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance 
Trials test our faith. Reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses, I'm sorry, chapter 8 through chapter 11, where God tells the Israelites through Moses that He allowed them to be hungry on purpose. And then He fed them with food that they were not accustomed to in order to test them, to know what was in their hearts. Difficult times test us. They bring pressure upon us as occasions for seeing whether or not we will trust God and seeing whether whether our faith is strengthened. Or sometimes those occasions show that we, we're not trusting God in any sense. They show not that our faith is, is weak, but that it is non-existent. Good times also can be trials if you think, that, think of them as occasions for testing our faith. We, we read about that kind of thing in Deuteronomy 11. God said, be very careful when you come into that good land that I'm giving you. And when you defeat these nations larger than yourself and you enjoy all the blessings of, of that land, be careful that you don't forget God thinking to yourself, well, I did all of these things for myself. In other words, times of blessing can be a testing of our faith. We're going to look to God as the giver of all good things. In seasons of both difficulty and blessing, our faith is tried. Will we trust in the Lord? Will we believe that our only hope is in Christ? As we begin this morning, I I would like for for all of us to think about those those things, those unique things that, that we are each individually facing. And likely, each of us are, are facing multiple circumstances. We are enjoying blessings and we are facing difficulties. And for many of us, we, we likely don't have to think very hard about that for those to come rushing to our minds. We might have to think a little bit about the blessings, but typically the difficulties, they come very quickly. But think for a moment about what those are, the blessings that you're enjoying right now and the difficulties, and and think of those now as occasions for either strengthened faith or hardening. Hardening is the cumulative effect of not believing in the Lord. And as the author of Hebrews here is determined to exhort us to cross the finish line of faith, he's charging us in this passage, don't harden your heart. As we consider the Word this morning, I would encourage you to keep your trials in mind. Trials in the sense of those things that are testing your faith. Both the blessings and the difficulties. Keep all of those things in mind. Keep your disposition in those things in mind. Are you becoming hardened or are you trusting the Lord more and more? Why does it matter? Well, look back up at verse 6. This is what we studied the last time we were in Hebrews. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That's why it matters. We, we, we are seeking to hold fast the Lord Jesus until the end. Now just a, a brief word about, about how this passage is structured relative to the, the, the points in, in your outline. The author in verses 7 through 19 
is essentially beginning to preach what we might think of as a small sermon based upon Psalm 95. And he goes about preaching a sermon maybe a little bit differently than we might around here. Now, he, he does read his text first, as we typically do. He does that in verses 7 through 11. That's an excerpt from Psalm 95. But he goes straight into application in verses 12 through 14, which we typically wouldn't do. He goes straight into application in verses 12 through 14, and only then begins to explain Psalm 95 in verses 15 through 19. We, we tend to explain a text af- right after we've read it, and then we move into application. But he reads the text, says, do this, and then says, okay, you're doing this because nine, Psalm 95 means this. And so the points in your, your sermon notes... They follow the order of, of the text, and for that reason, they, they look a, a little bit like a chiasm. If you don't know what a chiasm is, don't worry about it too much, but essentially, the first point and the last point are very similar because the first, the first section and the last section of his little mini-sermon here are his text and his explanation of it, the point of which of, the, of those two sections are, are the same thing. His sermon text and his explanation in verses 7 through 11 and, and 15 through 19 are our first and last point. They essentially teach the same thing. The heart of his application in verses 12 through 14 are our middle two points and where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. So, first, with his sermon text in Psalm 95, the author wants to call us to believe and obey the Lord. Believe and obey the Lord. Again, back in verse 6, the author of Hebrews has written, We are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And by the word therefore, in verse 7, he's signaling to us that he's about to go deeper into that idea from verse 6. He's about to show us how the Israelites did the opposite. They did not hold fast. And so he's going to use the failure of the Israelites in the Old Testament to exhort us Don't do what they did. You're going to do differently. You're going to hold fast, whereas they did not hold fast. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and notice notice how he phrases this, as the Holy Spirit says, not said, but as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is talking to you through Psalm 95. Now, this is a psalm that, that refers to events that happened... Many hundreds of years ago, but the Holy Spirit says to you, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Psalm 95 highlights an episode of rebellion at a place called Massa and Meribah. And you can read all about that event in Exodus 17. The people whom God had saved from slavery in Egypt by many signs and wonders and people for whom God had provided manna from heaven. These same people, they found themselves in difficult circumstances. They had no water. Now, what was their reflex in in that situation? Got no water. What was their reflex? Some of you may remember. Was it to say to one another, God's got this. We're we're, we're going to be just fine, right? That was not their reflex. But rather, their reflex was 
we're going to die of thirst. Their reflex was to grumble, is the Lord among us or not? And and, and notice that in, in the midst of this, the psalmist characterizes this test of their faith, or at least their response to it, as them testing God by their unbelief. Psalm 95 mentions that occasion explicitly, but but also through allusion, it draws our attention to other occasions of rebellion. Specifically, the psalm mentions 40 years in the wilderness, which should take our minds to Numbers 13 and 14. And those of you who are familiar with that, you, you know instantly what Numbers 13 and 14 talks about. That's where the people failed to believe the good report of the two spies And instead, they believed the bad report of the ten spies, and they refused to enter the good land that the Lord was giving them. And that's the occasion which led the Lord to say, as is quoted in Psalm 95, as I swore in my my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That unbelieving generation will not go into the land. So Psalm 95 is is, is putting in front of a later generation, David's generation, is putting in front of them, look, there has been rebellion over and over in our history, which is why the Holy Spirit now says to you, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. These people who saw God's works and they heard His voice, They still did not trust Him. And so, they did not enter the promised land. And so today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. The the author's point is is that there is an application here for those who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that in Hebrews 3.5, you can scan right back up there. In Hebrews 3.5, the author wrote, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And what he means by that is that the Exodus and Moses' ministry and everything surrounding that, those were all foreshadowings of greater realities in Jesus Christ. So as the Israelites were at one time enslaved in Egypt, so all people, including all of us, all people who come from Adam suffer under a far worse slavery. All people descended from Adam are conceived as slaves of sin, dead in their trespasses, and therefore separated from God. Separated from God in this life and doomed to eternal separation from Him in hell in the next life, which is the due penalty for their rebellion against Him. And just as the Israelites were helpless to free themselves in Egypt, so also man is helpless to free himself both from his own sinful heart and he is helpless to free himself from the due penalty of his sin. Now, the good news or the gospel is is that God sent His own Son to lead His people out of that slavery by many signs and wonders. The eternal Son took on human flesh through a virgin birth he, he obeyed the law of God perfectly on behalf of sinners. He died on the cross in their place. And He rose from the dead on the third day, defeating sin and death. 
so that those who trust in Christ, they are given life from the dead. And they are clothed in Christ's righteousness before the Father. And they now constitute a great body of people moving from the wilderness of this fallen world into the promised land of eternity. And here in Hebrews, the author likens believers, people, people like, like us, he like, likens believers awaiting entrance into glory to the children of Israel awaiting entrance into Canaan. And he uses Israel's failure to call the believer to keep clinging to Christ until the last day. Do what the Israelites did not do, which is keep believing. They they came out of Egypt, but they did not believe God until they had passed into the promised land. And he's saying, you do differently. Don't harden your heart as, as they harden theirs. Today, if you hear His voice... If you hear the gospel, don't do what they did. Rather, believe and obey God. And so having, having read his sermon text in Psalm 95, he goes straight into to application. Two main applications he gives. The first of which is the next point in your notes, which is keep watch on your own heart. Keep watch on your own heart. Verse 12 again reads, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, let's notice, first of all, that specifically he is talking to believers. He calls them brothers, not false brothers. He's, hey, he doesn't say anything like, hey, those of you in the church who think that you're Christians, but you're really not, be careful and watch out for unbelief in yourself. No, he says, believers, brothers, take care. And additionally, he uses language indicating that this exhortation is for everyone. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So this is an exhortation for all in the congregation. And so, so in the spirit of, of this text, I, I say to everyone here, I, 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 I'm looking at the elders, so Pastor Rick and, and Pastor... Pastor Dan and Pastor Dan and Pastor John and Pastor Jason and Pastor Michael and Pastor Greg and into into the deacons and and I see many faces out here you who you who teach you have been called to teach I see Hannah Martell who who teaches our children you who have walked with the Lord for decades and you who have walked with the Lord for days. Be careful, keep watch, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Before we we get into this application, look at verses 12 and 13 again. In in these two verses, he does give us two things to do, but but look particularly at the second half of, of these two verses. In the second half of these two verses, he uses virtually synonymous contexts, concepts, I'm sorry. When the text talks about an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God in verse 12, and then in verse 13, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he's referring broadly to one big idea, okay? So we're going to talk about that one big idea first before we get into the nuts and bolts of how to go about these two applications. The heart, 
the heart in Scripture is not primarily the seat of affections, which is the way that we tend to think about it in our culture, but rather it's, it's the whole person, including the will and the mind. So an unbelieving heart refers to a person, a whole person, who at his core says, I don't trust the Lord. I don't believe that what he said is, is true, and so I'm not trusting him. And as, as this text reads, that is evil. It's evil to say that. It's evil to not believe. Because unbelief holds to falsehoods about God. And the, the vicinity here in verses 12-13 to indicate that it is not objectivity that leads a person to not believe. It's not someone following the facts wherever they lead, but rather it's the opposite. It's a person following their desires and ignoring true information in order to get their desires. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is a phrase that he uses. Hardening there refers to a cognitive choice to resist information. That's what hardening is. It is a cognitive choice to resist information. The people in the wilderness, okay, they weren't being objective. Not, not at all. They, 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 they weren't just looking at the evidence saying, well, we don't have water. We're going to die. We're just, we're just following the evidence. Under normal circumstances, that might have been reasonable, but not under their circumstances. Under their circumstances, that was unreasonable. That was not in accordance with reason. Why? Because of everything that they had seen and everything that they had heard. They were fools because they saw with their own eyes the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw the greatest army in the world drown in an instant. They saw every morning bread materialized on the floor of the desert. And so when they didn't have water at Marah and Meribah and they concluded we're going to die, they weren't following any evidence. They were resisting evidence. They were hardened against the truth. Their minds and their hearts were hardened against belief. And listen carefully to this. The enemy, the devil, the world, and and as, as, as we'll see in a moment, sometimes our own sinful desires would persuade us that belief in God, belief in the Gospel, requires one to check the old melon at the door. But that is simply not the case. Belief is the most reasonable thing. And the Scriptures show us that over and over and over. God has given us enough in creation itself to leave us without excuse. Not just for believing in God, but to leave us without excuse for worshiping God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool says that. The fool is hardened against belief, and he is motivated in that hardening by sin. He prefers sin over God. Sin is deceitful, the text tells us. And sin deceives us in the sense that it seduces us by its pleasures. And we need to go no further than the third chapter of the Bible to find that to be true. The serpent convinced the woman, look, eating, eating that fruit is going to be good for you. 
And so we read in Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the, the tree was good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was des- desired to, be, to, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve didn't believe God. Not because it was, it was unreasonable to believe Him. Not because it was more reasonable or more plausible to go some other way. It was because she wanted the fruit. And so she was deceived by sin. She wanted to believe something other than God. This is good for me. And so, to accommodate this belief, God must be wrong. That's not objectivity. It's resistance of the heart motivated by a desire for sin. And the people of Israel, they were making the same kind of calculation when they said things like, well, it would just be better for us if we were back in Egypt where we had meat and, and onions. It'd be better for us to do that than for us to die out here in the wilderness. They were in no danger of dying in the wilderness. And they knew it. Because they had seen their God kill all of the Egyptian army. There was no danger. And they knew it. They too succumbed to the deceitfulness of sin. They just wanted the comfort. They they wanted comfort that they could see. They wanted it the moment that they wanted it. They wanted wanted the refrigerator of their day right in front of them. I want food when I want it, and I want what food when I want it. I want water when I want it, and I want it right now. And I want shelter, and I want walls, and I want to look like everybody else. We don't trust a God we can't see, even though we've seen His work and heard His voice. Unbelief is choosing God, choosing something else over God. That's what the author's getting at when he writes, leading you to fall away from the living God. You might write this down if you're taking notes. Anytime you see the adjective living before God in the Word of God, there is an implied comparison between the one true God and false gods. That's what's happening there. He's the living God as opposed to all the other ones that aren't. All the the man-made gods that are inanimate objects. So so listen to how similar Deuteronomy 11.16 is to Hebrews 3.12 and 13. Hebrews 3.12 and 13 is what we're looking at right now. Listen to how similar Deuteronomy 11.16 is. Take care. The same Hebrew verb as the Greek verb right here, okay? Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. That's, that's virtually synonymous with Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. But instead of saying, fall away from the living God, it essentially says, fall away and serve other gods. That's what's happening when we fall away from the living God. We are choosing other gods instead of Him. The evil, unbelieving heart is one that makes this choice so often that it becomes hardened to the things of God in such a way that eventually there is a definitive walking away from Christ in favor of sin and darkness and false worship. And so, in verses 12 and 13, the author is seeking to give the readers then two ways, two ways to combat the heart's resistance to the truth This resistance to the truth which is motivated by sinful desire for something other than the living God. And of course, the first course of action that he's prescribed is what we've already begun to get into, which is keeping watch on your own heart. The Holman Christian Standard Bible and its translation, it goes with a more literal rendering of this imperative verb in verse 12. It says, watch out. That's a great way to think of this. 
It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verb that, that means use your eyes to look at something. Watch out. Beware. Be on guard. Keep your eyes on this thing. Keep a bead on your heart. Be vigilant so that your heart doesn't turn toward unbelief. And a person who's keeping watch is going to be someone who thinks about personal sin, not strictly in terms of doing things God forbids or not doing things God commands, but in terms of failing to believe and failing to worship. person keeping watch is going to see temptation as a test of faith. Will I believe God or not? Think back to that situation at Marah and Meribah. That, that was not just a test to see whether or not the people were going to grumble, a, a sin of the tongue. It was a test about whether or not the people were going to trust the Lord to meet their needs. They grumbled in their lack of belief their lack of trust in Him. But their major failure was that they did not believe. The person keeping watch will consider whether instances of sin are indicative of a larger pattern of unbelief, understanding that unbelief is deadly. What what does the author say about unbelief here? He said it leads one to fall away from the living God. So the the, the person keeping watch is is not going to make allowance for sin. He's not going to say, well, it's just this one time, but rather he's going to be squashing every occurrence because at the heart of sin is unbelief and in any episode of unbelief is is apostasy in seed form. So the person keeping watch absolutely is going to be killing sin, but doing so as more than this surface level modification of behavior but rather, they'll be going after the heart, as Pastor Jason talked about in, in Sunday school this morning. They'll be going after the heart. What have I been believing and not believing that, that led me to this place of sin? What have I been worshiping and how I've been failing to worship Christ above all that led me to this place of sin? How can I grow in trusting and worshiping Christ above all as I kill the, this sin? So believer, you who want to enter God's rest, keep a close watch on your own heart for signs of unbelief. Now, some of us, some of us have a propensity for what what we have referred to around here as morbid introspection. And that's where that's where we become just consumed with these questions about our own heart and and we, we, we get into this kind of like toilet bowl thing of just all the time, all I'm doing is just, why did I do what I did? And what does it say about my heart? What have I been worshiping? And I, I just can't do anything but that. So we don't want to go there to where we, 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 we can't function as a human being. So here, here are a couple of ways to avoid getting into that trap of just constantly looking at our own hearts. The first of those is, just spend regular time with the Lord. Just spend regular time with the Lord. Regular time with the Lord, thoughtfully reading the Scriptures, prayerfully applying them, and you'll get plenty of what you need in terms of introspection just from the regular ministry of the Holy Spirit. You don't need any more introspection than, than you would get there. But second, 
devote yourself to this other application that the author is about to give us, all right? Which is our next point in the notes. And that is exhort one another. Exhort one another. In other words, we're to, to combat morbid introspection, which is I'm going to be all about looking into my twisted up heart. I am going to look at my own heart in my own devotional life, but I'm going to get outside of myself and I'm going to help other people, which is the third point in your notes. Exhort one another. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today. What does he mean by that? As long as it's called today. Well, he's, he's just referring back to his sermon text, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, today as opposed to the day of the Lord, when he returns and we enter into his glory. In other words, as long as we're in this life, it should be our pattern of life to exhort one another. And to exhort just means, it, it, it literally means to come alongside someone. But figuratively, it means to, to champion belief in one another. So, so we're, we're, we're coming alongside someone to help them grow in their trust in Jesus. Encourage each other. And the context of this passage indicates that the best kind of exhortation is exhortation that specifically encourages trust in Christ. It's not generic encouragement. And it certainly isn't, you can do it! But rather, it's look at Jesus. He is worthy of, of faith. We tend to ask, when we get together to stir one another, we may, we may tend to ask kind of like a broad, generic question, how are you doing spiritually? There's nothing wrong with that question. That may be a, a way to tiptoe into a conversation about spiritual things. So don't, don't get rid of that question. It's a fine question. But... When we get into a conversation with another believer and someone shares that they're struggling, maybe, maybe they're, they're going through a difficult time or, or they're, they're struggling with a sin, or they're facing a trial or a test, which is they're experiencing extreme blessing, we could ask an additional question, which may be something like, well, what is your disposition toward the Lord in the midst of that? Are, are you leaning on, on Him? And if so, how? Are you processing what, what's going on in light of His good news? Sometimes, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but, but this certainly is the case for me. When, when I'm in the midst of a season, good season, difficult season, it can be so overwhelming that it's very helpful to have somebody outside of that help me, not only by reminding me to look to Jesus, but by helping me to look to Jesus. In other words, looking to Jesus with me, talking me through it. So, for example, if someone shares they've just received a bleak health report, you can help them think through that. Ask questions like, where are the specific places in this scenario that, that you currently or will be challenged to doubt the Lord? Let's, let's talk about all the reasons that He's trustworthy. Let's, let's talk about how He's encouraged us 
to pray persistently. Let's go to the Word together and, and, and look at those places in Scripture where he, he said to pray persistently. Let's talk about the Lord's ability to heal. Let's talk about the Lord's wisdom in all things. And let's talk about eternity and how if in His wisdom He doesn't heal you, it's better to be with Christ. To just talk them through that. And and in in that whole thing, we're, we're pointing them to Jesus and His trustworthiness. He can be trusted. Believe in Him. If someone gets a great health report, we might think, oh, well, okay, I'll just call the next person. No. If somebody gets a great health report, it may be helpful to, to help them think through that, especially in light of how the Lord warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8 through 11. Well, can you think of ways that on the back end of this good health report, you may be tempted to forget the Lord? Because now that that pressure is off of you, are there ways that, that you might, in the alleviation of, of that situation, be, be, be tempted or find it easy to forget the Lord, to drift away from Him. Or, or you could help them to think, think through what, what this good health report is going to mean for their discipleship. What's, what's this going to mean? How, how might this free you up for, for spending more time with other people, pouring into other people? Or why don't we talk through together how the specific ways that He's sustained you over these last several months. And in talking through that, that, that with that person, you're, you're both being stirred up in the Lord. We're just reminiscing together how the Lord sustained that person until they got that good, that good health report. It's very helpful to them, very helpful to you. If a person is struggling with sin, help them with that. Working through the kinds of questions that I mentioned earlier, thinking about it in terms of belief and worship. What are you, what are you believing in, in those moments of temptation? What are you worshiping? What's the scenario? And, and, and help them to look to Christ, to believe what Jesus says, that He's better than, than the paltry things of this world. Help them to grow in their worship of the Lord Jesus. Essentially, no matter what the situation your fellow member is looking at, it, 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 is, it is your job to say, Look to Jesus and trust Him. And and to point to the Scriptures about Jesus and to point to the Gospel and just gently remind them, you know that this is true. You know that this is true. Hang in there. Let's, Let's walk together. We're almost home. Jesus is worthy. Well, let's let's keep let's keep trusting him. And these kinds of conversations, they can happen over coffee, they can happen over lunch. They can happen over the phone. So I I encourage you right now to think about who in this congregation you could encourage this week. Who are the people that you typically gravitate to? Who are those people? Your go-to people. I I encourage you to go ahead and make that list. Your go-to people. Who are the people you typically gravitate to? Go ahead and make that, that mental list. You got it? Your mental list. Now please take that mental list and throw it in the mental garbage can. Because we're going to make a new list. When you get home today, go through the membership app and look for different people. People that you don't know. And in particular, people of a different generation. Look, look for older men. You younger men, look for older men. And, and vice versa. Older men, you look for some younger men. And 
older women, look for younger women, and vice versa. Reach out to them, schedule a phone call, coffee, lunch, whatever. Again, starting in particular with people you don't know, don't know well. And, and keep in mind that everyone on our membership role is in a covenant relationship with everyone else. So we're bound to one another by the blood of Christ and by a promise that we've solemnly made to everyone else. So, so we have plenty in common to agree together in the Lord and encourage one another in the faith. There is a reason that verse 12 is followed by verse 13. And that is that we need one another. And, and, and I encourage you to recognize the grammar of verse 13. Verse 13 is a straightforward command. Do this. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Get into one another's lives. It's not a suggestion. It's not an optimal master's degree in in Christianity or discipleship. This is baseline Christianity. It's a command to every believer. God intends for followers of Christ to make it a regular habit of life to encourage other believers to trust Jesus. You may just be the vessel that the Lord uses on a given day to wake somebody up from spiritual slumber, to jar someone free from habitual sin, to move someone toward thanksgiving, to help someone give Christ the glory for an overlooked kindness, to take that one more step of faith toward an eternity with Him. And that, that is an eternally significant way to spend your time. And it's important because, just so we don't forget, look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That may sound kind of familiar. It's because it's very similar language to verse 6, which read, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It's what all of this is about. That, that, that original sentence, I'm sorry, the overall sentence of, of verse 14 is the same idea as, as verse 6, and it should be interpreted the same way. All of this exhortation to keep watch on ourselves and to exhort one another is because we will enjoy participation in Christ's heavenly rule if we hold fast our confidence to the end. If we trust Christ to the finish line. It is not about starting a race. It is about finishing the race. So finish the race. And help others finish the race. That's what he's getting at. And that's the big idea of the final verses of the chapter, which leads him once again to call us to believe and obey the Lord. To believe and obey the Lord. Verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. As I mentioned earlier, in verses 15 through 19, the, the author is explaining the meaning of his sermon text, Psalm 95. So he, he reads the text, gives the application in verses 12 through 14, and now he's saying, here's why you should apply the text the way that I said in verses 12 through 14, because this is what it means. 
And what we find in verses 15 through 19 is a very Jewish way of exposing a text. Question and answer with a conclusion. And the conclusion is in verse 19. And we're not going to go through all of this with a fine-tooth comb because we looked at it a bit closer back in verses 7 through 11. But just notice, once again, the people heard. They heard. They saw all the things that the Lord had done. But they rebelled. They sinned. They were disobedient. He uses several different terms to indicate their unbelief. And so they did not enter the Lord's rest. And that is his final interpretation. He gives his final concluding interpretation in verse 19. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Israelites, they came out of Egypt, but coming out of Egypt was not synonymous with entering Canaan. Their hearts were hardened in unbelief, and so they did not enter God's rest. And the purpose of putting this text, Psalm 95, in front of the reader is to exhort us to do differently. Believe and obey the Lord. Continue trusting Christ. So no matter matter the nature of the testing of your faith, and and again, likely likely it's multiple things. You're you're, you're experiencing blessings that perhaps you're you're, you're overlooking the need to, to enjoy those blessings while recognizing that Christ is the source of them and superseding them as a higher joy in your life. And at the same time, you're also experiencing difficulties, perhaps tempting you to, to doubt Him in various ways. Look for other sources of comfort. No matter the, the nature of the testing of your faith, cling to Christ and His gospel. Trust in Him. The way is hard, and there are trials between here and the promised land. But Christ is already there having paved the way. He, he's, he's the only one who redeems from sin. He is the only one who has conquered death. He is the only one who gives life. He is the only one who now reigns on high. There is life in no one else. And so since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us continue to trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the blood of Christ which covers our sin, has paid for our forgiveness, which grants us entrance into the eternal kingdom. We thank You for moving us to repent and trust in Him. And We pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, move us to cling to Him until that day. Father, would you please use every difficulty in our lives and every blessing 
to strengthen our faith in Christ. Show us to take seriously the words of this text. That we would not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we would not become hardened by difficulty or hardened by blessing. But that we would, by, by reflex and by choice, look to Christ over and over. When we are blessed and when we are beset with difficulty, look to Christ, trusting in Him. Recognizing that we are almost home. We need your help in these things. We pray for it in the name of Jesus.